Hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here. I'm at Chinese University in Hong Kong and I'm staring out at a beautiful visage from the office of my new friend Saskia. And I want you to get my pronunciation right of your last name, or actually your first name as well. Saskia is okay? That's right. Is it Vitterborn? Yeah, very good. Okay, all right. So, uh, and you've lived in Hong Kong how long, Saskia? Mm -hmm. I've been here since August 2005. Oh, so you're a veteran. <laughs> Pretty much. That's getting on yes. for a decade. Yeah. And how long here at Chinese University? Yeah, this is when I started here. Oh, it started came, then? Yeah, exactly. Oh, I, I see. For some here. reason, I thought you were here earlier. And then, no, no, okay, no. Okay. Yes, yes. Wow, that's exciting. So you know the department well. Mm -hmm. And I guess I wanted to kick off by asking you a question I ask most people, actually, in this thing. What are you working on now? Tell us a bit about what you're working on now. And then maybe we could go back, 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 like they say in baseball, to right. talk about yeah, the past yeah. a bit. Yeah. Yeah? Well, um, for the past three years or so, I, I've been working on a project related to uh, forced migrants and new technologies. Mm. And mm. Um, overall, I've been working with forced migrants for the past... 10 years or even longer because my general research is transnational migration and communication. So I've become interested in how people who are forced to kind of cross borders politically, culturally, economically and so on, how they use new technologies to connect and also to regain some of the agency they, that they seem to have lost either by governments or by the general media discourse that usually mm. depicts them as victims. Right. right. Yeah. And are you looking at groups locally or elsewhere? Yeah. Well, this particular project was in, uh, uh, in Germany. It's finished now, um, but I spent several summers there in the uh, um, shared asylum acc accommodations. That's the kind of official term. This is the polite, <laughs> exactly. double-speak term. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and I've been doing research there with the people. And um, in 2012, um, people started to mobilize um, and, and really started to kind of become visible politically. Um, when they started moving from southern Germany to the capital, to Berlin, and occupied one of the places, the Oranienplatz in Kreuzberg. Mm -hmm. They lived in a school, um, and um, so that was a very interesting time, because you could see, um, it, it has happened before, but not for such a long time, how people started gaining a voice, and not only in Germany, but in other European countries as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so I spent time with them um, to, to really understand, so how do they use um, these technologies um, to mobilize for collective learning also? Been very interested mm -hmm. in that. How women would teach each other very simple things like emails, um, how to write a blog, and how to create this awareness. And where are these folks coming from and who are in Germany in these, these accommodations? Yeah, they were coming from, uh, from African countries. Mm -hmm. um, they were coming from Eastern Europe, Afghanistan, uh, some from Syria at the time, some from Southeast Asia. But, um, yeah, Afghanistan was pretty big, and, um, yeah. And asylum seekers from Eastern Europe? That's yeah, yes, yes. I mean, there's still, at the moment, in, in Germany, for instance, um, there are many people coming um, from, from Kosovo. Mm. And um, the chances are pretty low that they will get recognized, but people come because they are, they are so desperate. And um, But, of course, they do not fall into the official legal 
um, label of asylum seekers eventually, I guess, because um, the uh, um, Kosovo is not a safe country yet. I mean, there are these official terms, right? Um, but there, there were at the time also um, many people, um, especially Roma and Sinti, mm. coming over. And um, so yes, there are people from from Eastern Europe. Mm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And you've mentioned blogs already and emails. So what are the technologies that the folks are using? Yeah. Well, at the time, I mean, the mobile phone is really is, is important. Um, when I did the research, smartphones there were not that many yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, so people use um, you know social media. They use the whole social networking sites mm-hmm. to get together to coordinate actions. Um, but it was mostly the supporters, the local supporters, that would train them in these technologies and also um, kind of supply them. There's always mm-hmm. a question of access because a lot of the these guys they don't have that much money. Although almost everybody has a cell phone, of course, or a mobile phone, I should say, and. Um, yeah, to to stay in touch and so on. Um, but there, there were still people who, uh, I mean, especially if you live in these shared accommodations, internet access. There are some, but sometimes the internet connection is very slow. Mm-hmm. There are in, there are NGOs who actually work on mm-hmm. um, building um, kind of um, internet cafes. It's like mm-hmm. the 1990s term, but they are they are building these internet cafes in Berlin and surrounding, so people have access and can. That's interesting. And what is their legal situation? What does Germany consider to be legitimate asylum uh, claims? Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, usually you you go from like the international um, definition of um, of refugee, Mm. and then you have national asylum law. Um, At the moment, the people with the highest recognition rate are people from Syria, obviously, Mm. Um, and. So oftentimes the problem is these processes can be very long, yeah. and um, uh, some people live there from anywhere from like three years to nine years, Good and grief. even longer. Yes, um, and uh, and so that really creates a lot of problems um, for the people until they go through this very very long legal process, and if they get rejected, they can appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some people just also try to draw it out because they're either really afraid to go back. Um, to yeah. be deported yeah. and so on. And Saskia, what sorts of numbers are we talking about, would you say? I don't have like the current one from 2014. Right. I, right. Um, uh, the 15 numbers I don't think are out yet. Um, I really, I would need to check what the, right, I don't right. want to but give we, you any wrong it, numbers. More or less, are we talking about 100,000 people, 20,000 people? No, more than uh, than 100,000, oh, okay. oh, absolutely, wow. yes. yes yeah. And what about public attitudes? Mm. How does that work? Because I know from time spent in other countries that public attitudes to refugees mm-hmm. can be nowadays exceptionally negative and prejudicial. Yeah, well, um, you have still like a, I, I would say there's still sympathy and compassion out mm. there. So the, it's a split, and studies also show that that the media discourse, in particular, that also of course shapes public opinion, um, describes the asylum seekers or refugees, depending which label they use, as the people who need the protection and so on. Um, but at the same time, um, as you can see with the current um, um, Pegida 
demonstrations in cities like Dresden and so on. Um, this the public sentiment is changing in some parts, and um, but also people bring in rather, um, you know. They, their own fears um, without having met any asylum seeker, without really knowing about the situation. Um, and um, so there, there is growing prejudice, I would say, against could, the people. Could we make a quick detour to Pegida? Uh, as you may know, it has a British branch now of fans who are quite overtly Nazis, actually, British mm -hmm. ones. Um, it seems as though it's a somewhat broad-based movement in Germany, or is it quite narrow? And is is migrant is migration a key element of it? Yeah. Well, officially, I mean, from what I understand, I, I watch the situation from uh, from distant Hong Kong. Here, yeah. So, yeah. Um, but from what what I understand, um, yes, it's like the kind of anti-Islam um, attitudes play a very big role there, mm -hmm. um, and 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 with that also anti-immigration. Um, and, and that happened in a city that has a very low percentage of immigrants, actually, in Dresden. Um, and, um, and has then also um, been replicated in other German cities. But I also want to really emphasize there have always been counter-demonstration against that. And that gave me hope. So when I watched this from afar, I got really a little nervous what's going on, what's happening in, in Germany right now. Um, but, so yeah, I mean, these officially anti-Islam um, attitudes that seem to have been the start, but then also attitudes against and prejudice and stereotypes against right. asylum seekers, who, um, for the people who believe in Pegida ideas, seem to represent the kind of, um, the, the, the strengthening power of, of Islam and all of that. And in, in Germany, what significance does Islam have in life outside accommodation, outside these centres, these detention centres, let's call them? Yeah. They yeah. are. Yeah. Well, I mean, officially politicians say Islam is, is part of Germany, and I'm very happy to hear that. Mm, mm. Um, and there is, I, I think, in, 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 um, in public life in general, um, there, you know, you see mosques in some cities. Mostly from um, from Turkish immigration, or yes, Turkey, yeah, 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 most of the biggest one of the biggest mm -hmm. percentage in, in Germany is as Turkish migrants. Um, so you have some of that, and um, you have also at, in schools some education on Islam and so on. Um, but it, it really seems that the, the, the public fears, they are really fueled a mm. lot by, mm. by this media discourse and, mm. and, and, and they are counter-movements, they are the foundation of the Young Islam Conference to really bring in young people into the discourse on, on, um, on religion, um, on inter-religious dialogue, how we call it, and so on. This this horrible expression that makes me feel ill, interfaith. Dialogue. They use a lot in yes. sort of Tony Blair language. But anyway, um, getting back to the technologies issue and your specific research, I wondered if you could share with us a little bit about the sorts of things people are discussing, to the extent that it, you feel comfortable with sharing that, hmm. um, um, either from this research or other yeah. materials. Well, from this research, and um, I found that people use these technologies in different ways, but um, one is really where we can see how, and we kind of know that that's not a new new thing, but you can see very clearly how, how technology restructures and transforms 
um, social relationality, how mm. people mm. have mm. this co-presence out of a sudden where, you know, they can engage with their families across borders, um, where they can also choreograph their own performance. Very interesting. I mean, some of these guys have had very, very difficult journeys and the whole family chipped in to flee a country. And then they sit in these asylum shelters and wait and wait. And so they don't want to give an impression to their family that they have failed. So it's interesting to see how they self-present. Mm -hmm. um, what's also interesting, a lot of the people I've worked with, they use Facebook. I mean, now it's changing probably, and they use WhatsApp and so on. Um, but you could really see when they use the social networks how they engage in this, I like that idea of becoming. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, we usually talk about identity as like a product, a finalized thing. The person from, yes, right. from usually Africa, people don't even bother to talk about specific African countries. And, um, or, or the Muslim, the Christian and all of that. But if you really look at identity as a process, and uh, you see that also when people engage with each, these technologies, how they, and this is like the Deleuzean Guattari concept, mm -hmm. out, how they grow out of the midst of things, how they uh, become something else, developing into something else that, um, again, and through that regain some of this agency that they have lost I think in this whole bureaucratic process mm -hmm. and to really see how they create a sense of normality when they chat with friends. I mean, there are people, you know, they laugh, they socialize, women put lipsticks on and, you know, the whole, right. like it's, it's also a somewhat of a normal life. It's not only disaster and tragedy and all of that. Yeah. And, um, and so this on an everyday basis, people use technologies a lot for entertainment especially if, if they cannot work. So what do you do? Well, you watch YouTube from back home, you watch, um, you know, um, Somali music and um, mm. music videos, you read the news. Um, so you chat with people whom you've met somewhere else. Yeah, um, yeah. That is really also takes up a big part. Um, and I think this is terrifically important. It's so easy for those of us on the left who are engaged with ideas of political struggle of different kinds, mm -hmm. to pay lip service to the everyday, mm -hmm. but actually not to want to know about it terribly much because it's boring. Mm -hmm. And the idea that people might devote yes. a lot of their time exactly. to very important pleasures that have their own politics, yeah. of course, yeah. like putting on lipstick, yeah. looking at one another and saying you look beautiful or whatever, isn't on the same level as struggling for the rights of immigrants of or whatever. Course. But of course it's actually incredibly important for everybody. Yes, it is. And there's a debate, of course. I mean, it is very important to really pay attention to um, to, to all the, the structural systemic problems related to forced migration um, without... Um, and, and But at the same time, also paying attention to how people live their lives. Yeah, yeah. And there's then also striking the balance, because if you if you only describe one and neglect all these structural yeah. issues, yeah. then you really, it's again... A, it, it, I mean, and this is the benefit away. of things like the Annal School, uh, the idea of long durée, in semiotic terms, the interplay of long and parole. You know, you have to have the conjunctural or technical yes. settings and rules. But you also have to have the lived experience, mm -hmm. which frequently will not necessarily simply reflect those macro mm -hmm. issues. It will play itself out with its own dynamic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, going back, 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 as I said, I'm looking on your wall, 
couldn't help looking over your left <laughs> yeah, ear, Saskia, and seeing that you won the National Communication Association International Intercultural Communication Division 2006 Outstanding Dissertation Award. <laughs> That's right. Congratulations. Oh, my God. No, <laughs> easy to laugh about it, but it's very impressive. Uh, can you tell us about your, your dissertation and grad school mm -hmm. experiences? So we're going back now 10 years and more, yes, so yeah, before you yeah. came. Yeah. Yeah. And what you what you were doing there? Yeah, I mean the topic was was kind of uh, similar and different, but I've always been interested in in migration and communication. And so at the time, um, and especially with this dissertation, I've been working with people who came from Arab countries and have settled in the U.S. And um, that was you know Iraqis, Palestinians, um, people from Libya, and um, um, Iraq, Iraq, I've mentioned already, Saudi Arabia, and um, I started my research actually before September 11th, and um, and so it was interesting to see the kind of changes before and after September 11th, and I've become interested in, so how do people themselves, um, meaning people who would describe themselves as coming from a country situated in the so-called Arab world, first, second generation, how do they talk about themselves and again how do they engage in grouping processes mm -hmm. after mm -hmm. such a politically significant event mm -hmm. and like 9-11 and so um, I spend a lot of time again you know I'm an ethnography, uh, ethnographer, I do qualitative research and a lot of interviews, participant observations. A lot of putting on the lipstick. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> And um, so I spent a lot of time with them and it was very, very interesting to see how, how, how do they group and regroup. How yeah. out of a sudden some groups start, started saying, we are for the first time really proud to call ourselves Arab American. Mm. And, mm. and that was something surprising regarding the mm. racial profiling and all the difficult issues um, yeah, that have been going on. Um, and so that was what this dissertation was all about to again give I don't like using that word give voice to somebody because who am I to give voice to anybody well but the NCA is the most important professional <laughs> association right. in the world exactly and essentially is. by recording and analyzing some of what those people were saying you were giving them voice to the world the That's narratives nice. I've always <laughs> been really interested the in narratives, narratives. Right. And, and, and really recording these narratives because they are so so absolutely essential to human experience and how people relate to each other mm, mm, through, the, through mm, this narrative experience mm. and, and also how people actually can use narrative strategically. Um, you had a lot of the so-called interfaith dialogues going mm. on at the time mm. between Pal Palestinians and Israelis, mm. for instance, mm. and, mm. Um, and narrative played a very important role there. You know, I, I, we were talking the other night about different parts of the world, I guess, where we'd lived or where we had interests. Mm. One of the things I'm excited about is that in late May I'm starting out this job at Universidad del Norte in Barranquilla where economically the town is run by Palestinians and Jews, both of whom as groups left after 48 for various mm -hmm. reasons, at least after the war. Mm -hmm. And they've ended up here on the Caribbean coast and they're the two successful economic groups. Mm -hmm. They live in the same parts of town. Mm -hmm. Their children, I think, go to some of the same schools. They don't really mix socially very much, yeah. but there's not a problem. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting example. I, it's something I really want mm -hmm. to learn more about mm -hmm. as Absolutely. I spend time there. So, um, where were you located when you were doing this research with 
these migrant um, In the I was located in Seattle, so mm. it was Pacific Pacific like Northwest. Northwest, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Now I, I think I think I'm right in saying South Asians and a lot of Arab descended people again complicated mm -hmm. terms to use. A lot of them are in the Upper Midwest, right? A lot of so. Um, a lot in the Michigan, Michigan exactly. has a lot. Detroit, Minnesota exactly, yes. has a lot. I think Minnesota had the first South Asian state congress person. Come yeah. on, saying that, and and I think Ar Arabs in Michigan. There's a museum there, isn't there? Like Arab American distinction. Yeah, interesting. So that's why it was interesting doing this research in this other mm. part because you could really, um, you know, see it was a, a some. I like Iraqis was a rather young community, if I can use that term, mm -hmm. and um, so they had to go through some of the issues. So, what are we doing? Who are we? How do we relate to each other and to others? And um, so, that was a very interesting time to actually to, to do that research there because there there was not much out there actually. And Saskia, can I speculate without? And mm -hmm. tell me off for getting it wrong or for asking the question at all, mm -hmm. it's fine. I know that you grew up in the German Democratic Republic, mm -hmm. which then merged when you were about, about 20 or so mm -hmm. with the Federal Republic of Germany. Mm -hmm. So you came from what, what was the poor part, mm -hmm. economically, and there was integration, mm -hmm. difficult for all concerned. Mm -hmm. Is any of this connected to what must may have been on your part an experience of othering, of feeling other in the new Germany? Did you have that at all? Yeah, um, I think that, I mean, it's an interesting question because I also, like, try to really think about why am I so interested in migration and mobility, I think, or, and I don't know if that really answers the, your question. Yes, that's really what I want but, but I think since I can remember, I, I, I grew up and, and I was sitting there at home and thinking, why, why am I here? Why can't I go to, let's see, France or the UK tomorrow? Why is that not possible? And and so um, I've also that it was one thing this idea of of being able to be mobile of mobility as a value exactly and you were restricted in travel exactly of course, right? yes yes I mean we could go to 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 other parts like Eastern Europe and so on but it was very clear where we could go and not go and I've always found it as a big restriction in my life mm. um, but also I've I've seen. I think in, in, in Germany there were some migrants, uh, mostly students who came from mm -hmm. uh, from Northern Africa and um, but I've always and, and some Vietnamese also who were brought in as, as so you know the, the kind of guest workers as they call them in, in, in West Germany to work in the factories. Mm -hmm. Um, but they were pretty isolated and they were kept in an isolated way and I could feel as a child growing up that there was tension, that people talked about um, uh, you know, those from these other countries. But there was never interaction, which was, and I didn't know that at the time, it was politically not favored for these groups to interact. Yeah. And so uh, that, that also, in a way, has always been on my kind of... Um, personal and academic agenda to really understand yeah. how how is it that groups come into being what are the factors that allow disallow them to, to come together and really so yeah. it's not so much about unification for you it's more about early childhood yes. experiences Absolutely. and wanderlust yeah. is that the right yeah 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 man, more or less exactly yeah. yes yeah. yes the uh, curiosity, curiosity what else is there beyond yeah. the border basically yes. yeah. fascinating
And I think you told me your, maybe your parents were musicians. Or aren't My musicians. father, yeah. Your father yeah, was a musician. Father. So he did travel. He did exactly, yes, yes. So and he I also had information exactly. coming in oh, absolutely. about yes. other places yes. where he would yeah, play. Yeah, yeah. Right. And of course, I mean, the city where I grew up in Leipzig, we had West German TV. So we would watch and we would uh, know what's going on, of course. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. this exactly this, this feeling of being imprisoned in a way yeah, that was yeah. um, very, very strong and, in my early life. And then that ends when you become an adult, when you're an adult, basically, at the point of And then you go to college, right? Yeah, and, and then, I, well, I went to the UK first to learn English. Right, because you, and that you said, was this was after you worked as a neurosurgeon at the age of 19. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, <laughs> 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 but after your early, early neurosurgical experiences, you went off to learn English mm -hmm. in, in the UK. And then what happened to you? Well, I feel I felt apart I mean, from being in the most wonderful, democratic, liberal, open society in world history. I, for the first time, I really understood class. Yeah, right. Um, All these years of Marxism have not prepared exactly. you for the reality of a class-based society. Except for one, because in my school, actually, we had. Um, all the, the, the students, so the, the, the teacher had this book, you know, it was still a book at the time, mm. with all of our grades. And behind each name, there was, um, um, like in translation in English now, an I or an A, uh, or a W, I should say, which meant I for intelligentsia, or W or A for, for working mm. class. And so that was exactly, so, you know, that kind of class-based system in, the, in a way was already there. But then, of course, when I came to the UK, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, there was tremendous wealth. Uh, um, there was, I lived in a very good family. And I also could observe what, what money can buy. And not only money, but what it means to be part of, of a certain history of class. And, and be embedded in the system and the kind of obligations that created for the people living there. So that was a, a very interesting but also difficult experience. Yeah, because people were so, so privileged. Yeah, it's incredible inequality, isn't there? Absolutely. It's, absolutely. it's so in your face. Yes, exactly. In a big city that isn't geographically big, mm -hmm. where it doesn't take you very long to get from really, really affluent areas to places that are in grinding poverty in, in yeah. global north yeah. terms yes, yes. with a social safety net that's much better than in most places. And how you can fence off this poverty, how yeah. you live in these wealthy areas right. around London, and this yeah. is where I lived with my family. And, uh, you were no parents? Exactly, yes. Yes. Wow. yes, exactly. I learned a lot during that time. And uh, so that was an important part because I've mm. never lived abroad, really. Right. So, and then you go to college? Then you go and then home. I went back to Germany to do a master's degree and then after that um, to the US to do the PhD. Right. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. And, and have, I've read some of your work, but in terms of the things we've been talking about today, mm -hmm. the new project has been going for a couple of years. Are there any publications from that yet that people could read? Um, oh yes, yes. Um, the, the earlier ones actually still from the US stage. There's a publication on Iraqis. Yeah, I've read that. I think. Now, where's that? This is the International Intercultural Journal of Communication. Yes, yes. And then there's one on a narrative and Palestinians. This is in um, research on language and social interaction. Rolsey. It's more as a social interaction journal because my research is also very much on language and social interaction and now also the virtual. Um, there's something that is now um, 
um, that was in a handbook. I need to check on. Uh, Handbook of Global Media Research, edited by Ingrid Volkmer, and that is um, a chapter on how uh, forced migrants create a, a sense of, of the local, because mm -hmm. the local is always a term that has been haunting me for a really long time. Mm -hmm. um, there's also one, um, at the moment, it's still um, under, a kind of, it's accepted with the um, Oxford Refugee Journal, and uh, that is also on forced migrants and uh, Becoming, so there are there are there are several of these um, oh, that's great. Um, out there. There is also one directly on forced migration and new technologies, um, and a special issue, um, crossings, and um, so yeah, I've been trying to kind of place it also in different venues to also attract different types of different leadership. Yeah. And people can find links to some of your work on your web page. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, I love the. Photos. Of the Chinese <laughs> yes. Anthony was telling me that Anthony Fong, who's been on the podcast a few months ago, when he introduced this, some of the faculty were a little iffy about the photos because it's got everybody, and they're obviously mock ups behind a completely mm -hmm. white background, black and white photos in very often fun, kind of provocative, mm -hmm. different poses, yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. right? Exactly. Really, really fun. Yeah. Uh, so, in terms of where you're seeing the future, uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit, uh, as we draw slowly to a close, about the prospects for forced migrants, refugees, whatever term we use, it's so mm -hmm. complicated to find the, the most polite and accurate mm -hmm. description, the most thoughtful and accurate description that people are happy with. Uh, because my, my observation from occasionally looking at the International Organization of Migration called figures is that this is just exploding and mm -hmm. it's going to be bigger and bigger and bigger as we see the the, fall, the real fallout from the end of the Cold War, yeah, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And then the other thing is where you think this the role of technologies is going. So if we could talk about those two things yeah, to yeah. conclude, that would be great. So yeah. first thing, your prediction about what's going to happen with forced migration, the second thing. Yeah. prediction of what's going to happen with use of technologies by these people. Yeah. I mean, in general, forced migration, it also depends. I mean, even that is a, is a problematic term in itself, yes. right? Um, but, but as you said, I mean, it, we are going to see more and more people coming if, if the people, depending on which, which region of the world we are talking about, we haven't even talked about China, we haven't even talked about Hong Kong, but uh, or Australia for that matter, <laughs> and the Christmas Island and all of that. Well, I mean, and for those people who don't know, this is one of the great human rights debacle of the yeah. 21st century and a disgraceful chapter in the long-running story of Australian racism. Yes. Yeah. So it's a question um, of how how we. I mean, I'm an academic. Um, I I've worked together, so I also I would not draw the line strongly between um, academic work and activism, especially if you engage with these issues. Um, I've always felt um, a need also to to engage with the people and and do something practical on the ground. Um, so I mean, it, it's a big question. Um, as academics, I think. There's, there's a growing need to really understand and work with interdisciplinary projects, mm. um, to work with uh, people from, from legal perspective, with psychologists, uh, with social workers, historians, to really understand um, what is going on, and then also um, work on maybe some policy recommendations, to really put out the figures and the mm. results and show here, look, 
this is what we have seen and and we do need some changes here one of the biggest changes is or one of the biggest issues i have seen there were there are so many people who live in these shelters or you know some some apartments and so on and and, and they are so socially isolated and depression mm -hmm. is a big problem so what do we do with that and, and, and I, as a communication researcher and, and, and as an academic in general, I've sometimes felt frustrated because I feel I, I am so limited in, in what I do. All I can do is I can put the, you know, I can speak. I, education is a big component, I think. Sure. So where this is going in terms of politics, I don't know. But in terms of what I can do is yeah. education. And we've done that here. We had like a refugee education week, like a project. A colleague organized that and I organized it with her where we um, actually organized lectures a series about a migration and enforced migration. We brought mm -hmm. students out in Hong Kong to actually um, learn about the, the system here. We uh, organized meetings with people who are currently um, seeking asylum here. Um, and, and, and students responded very positively to that. They were very interested. And you can really see that um, there there is really a need for the general population to learn, not just from the media, uh, what's what's going on. Mm -hmm. Second question. Yeah, second question was about technologies and what you see as the future for them. Well, I, I've now got a couple of more that are jumping up in <laughs> yeah, my head as I listen to them. Yeah. That was the second one about the future yeah. of use of these communications technologies yeah. by this I mean like all of us in, at the end of the day the people yes I mean they are living under these precarious circumstances and at the same time um, they are also people like us so technology mm. use is part of their lives economic yeah. aspect is of course an issue and access mm. still um, but I, I do think that um, social networking, for instance, um, will be used more and more also for, for I mean, personal purposes, but also to, yeah, to, to keep connecting with family and that might alleviate some of the isolation mm. Family issues. back home. Back or, home. Whatever home they, yes, they exactly. Or, or people who are also part of a diaspora. Exactly. That is, yeah, yeah, with people yeah. who are like all over the world, um, but also to find new friends, mm. um, to find information on jobs. So if I'm sitting there, if I know maybe there is a chance for me to get recognized, um, an important thing is what is the job education system. A lot of the people have mm. big dreams about going to school, they really want to learn. So um, how do you do that? Um, and there are social workers who help them, but I think learning also and teaching through technology, how do you get that information also on health? on the law um, and uh, again you know finding people that you can and want to live with also um, mm. it's it's that is going to be an, um, a very important part um, in the future as well um, plus also connecting to NGOs mm. um, finding again you know finding the information you need um, to live in a, in a new context it's a very you know simple kind of almost simplistic um, insight here, but but for the people that that can change a lot of things. Learning the language. I met um, a, mm -hmm. um, a journalist with his uh, son and, and and wife who lived um, in Germany, and they had learned German within a year through language language technology, um, and uh, it was fantastic to to see how they were very comfortable actually, the child and the father to to interact with 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 people and. And they said, no, we are not afraid. We, we, we can make it here.
So again, I don't want to be over-optimistic. I'm not a technological determinist here, definitely not. I'm also very much of a skeptic when it comes to, to new technologies. Mm, mm. But in terms of, of connecting and, and, and also political mobilization, yeah. I think there's definitely um, potential there. And, of course, what I've also seen, something that I haven't talked about much, and mm -hmm. I know we're running out of time. No, 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 we can keep going for a bit, please. But, um, is that you, of course, um, drag some of, of, of the values and the norms and all of that stuff that you have been socialized with, you mm. drag it into your new context. Mm. And so what, what we've also seen is the, actually the importance of affect mm -hmm. and emotion. And I think that there could be much more out there. Um, and I've tried to address that in my recent publications because I've seen it come up over and over again, the role of fear and how fear um, interacts with with the technological, how how people actually refrain from um, from going into the virtual world because they are scared because of surveillance. It's a big issue um, for I think all of us, but also especially for people who um, are doubly marginalized in a way. And and so this fear is is a big component. Shame, you know, some women would say, we cannot go to this public internet cafe because our families don't want us to go. So what do they do mm -hmm. if they don't have a computer at home? Um, so mm -hmm. I, I think the, the affect and how that drives certain decisions and how that keeps people in check also is, is a big component that we can pay more attention to. I, my, my couple of questions that have arisen while I've been listening to you are these. I'm, I'm thinking about Will Kimlicker's argument in multicultural citizenship where he says that in the Canadian context, and he comes from a Baltic state emigrate background himself, mm. he's in favor of special rights granted by the state to the descendants of indigenous people, mm -hmm. or indigenous people, the descendants of slaves, and involuntary migrants. But he's not in favor of special rights to maintain culture for voluntary, or what are often called economic Some of those distinctions are reasonably easy to police. Some of them are quite complicated. Mm -hmm. So, what if for you is a good way of distinguishing the folks you're working with from voluntary or economic migrants? Yeah, and I think that's, that's really an, an important question. I mean, in several ways, the people I've worked with, they live under similar conditions um, like legal migrants. Illegal migrants have to hide themselves, they have to live with very limited economic means um, and, and are really in limbo for, for mm. a very long amount of time. So I think they can be um, pretty pretty similar. Um, although I would say that, 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 that the people who you know, are called asylum seekers or refugees, they are in addition, un under political surveillance almost, when they have to live mm -hmm. under institutionalized surveillance in shadow silence shelters or in apartments, but they have to register so they are in the system. So, so in a way, that, that also the surveillance aspect mm. is there as well. Um, with, with the regular migrants, I mean, that there are so many different groups. I'm in a way a work migrant. I mm -hmm. came here to Hong Kong, a very, very privileged migrant, of course. 
Um, so we have mobile groups, people who are not just the traditional migrant, like the people I worked with in the US who move from country A to B, but we have people now who actually circulate. And especially the mobile elite, the people you see in Hong Kong here, the people who work for the banks. Mm. Um, so they are, um, of course, very different from the illegal migrant and, and, and that's mm. self-explanatory. And um, they pick and choose which so-called culture or social economic aspects they want to enjoy and then they can move on. And a lot of the, uh, the other people who are not as privileged, they of course, you know, they are stuck. They are kind of stuck in this limbo and have to live with it. And that relates to your generous sharing a little bit of your own experience and to my last question, which is, uh, you've been a migrant many times, mm -hmm. uh, first to Britain, uh, then to a unified Germany, I guess we could say, well, that's also coming home, to the United States and to Hong Kong, maybe other places, mm -hmm. but they're the ones I know of. Do you, do you, have you found yourself in any or all of those contexts doing things like looking for people with the same mm -hmm. language or ethnic background or religious background, whatever it is? Do you know what I mean? Have you looked for folks you could relate to who were like you, in inverted commas, or have you eschewed the position of the expat and sought to integrate and what's been your strategy? I'm not saying this is what you would recommend for others. I'm just interested in how you go about it because it's something I do quite a bit and I, will, I just love to hear how yeah. different people manage it. Yes. Do you look for Germans? Do you, you know, yeah. I mean, run a mile <laughs> or walk a yeah. mile? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, in, in general, I'm not too fond of, of national identification. And I always <laughs> hope to, to kind of find people who have shared interests and um, and so, um, of course, it's comfortable if you can speak in your native language. Mm. But um, but at the same time, I think that raises also a lot of other issues. So I've been kind of trying to uh, really find the people I can you know that can be a person from South America from from who who knows. Mm. Um, and also, I mean, it's it's a good question. I really I've been thinking about what do I count as a migrant, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it was part of my trying out mobility in a way, of, of moving around without having this, this aim of, okay, I moved there to settle there, to have a better life in a way, the kind of more traditional way of, 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 of migration, also how migration research was done. Um, I think for me as a mobile person at the time to learn English, of course it was about resources, of course it was about, in a way, bettering my chances in life, absolutely, so I think there are similarities right there. Um, but but you're right, I mean, in terms of like what kind of people would I hang out with, It, it I quickly learned, and, and the UK was a good place for that, that, um, you know, this, this class system that you know, this association with people or trying to understand people who are different from me, mm. but then also step, you know, taking a step back and, and say, so what, what do I do with this information? You know, the family sent off their child at the age of nine to a boarding school, something that I found very, you know, a foreign thing. And so it should be. It should be foreign to everybody. <laughs> exactly. Nine. Yes. So that... Um, um, yes, but but this this has been my strategy to always find people who who do interesting things, um, who um, do activities that I you know that I would enjoy, but definitely not based on nationality. Yeah, mm. that yeah. is, and religion. Well, religion is not a big component in my life. So right, it was neither. 
ja. äh, Intelligenz in Arbeiterklasse. I wonder if the teachers then weighted scores based on I or A of origin. So, um, and then this is, I promised the last question, but it's come up naturally. Again, the fact that you're interested in social interaction and language, uh, how, when we look at the different theoretical, methodological models for mm. doing that, what's your preferred one? Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in general, I'm, I'm very interested in trying to understand situated and grounded practice mm -hmm. um, as as lived and understood by the people I'm working with. Mm -hmm. So I'm very careful imposing my own grand theories and notion, notions mm -hmm. and concept on the people, but listen first. And that, that makes the research also very kind of intensive because you have to be there to really understand. And it's quite interesting because um, for me that has always been taken for granted that I do that, that I try to use the terms, the concepts, the ideas that people are using. Um, and now you hear it in other areas, like in architecture, out of a sudden, you know, architects come out and say, hey, um, and politicians say, let's, urban planning and, and, and building something, um, let's look at what people actually think about it. How do people want to live? Yeah. And for me, that has always been something that, that was my way of thinking anyways, mm -hmm. of not imposing too quickly, like especially living here in Hong Kong, Western ideas. And of course, we are always, you know, doing that to a certain degree, but at least stepping back and reflecting on what are we actually doing here. Um, so one, one, one example, I did research with NGOs in China and, and became interested in, in global citizenship, and, but also how communication practices become globalized and normalized. So, um, you know, NGOs from from the UK or the US um, talking about on their websites and also there on things like voice yourself, decision making, express yourself, right? I mean notions that are so culturally so specific and, and related um, to liberal democracies and all of that, how can you transplant them into a different context? It's an interesting question I think but also what people do, what do they do when they are confronted with this? And that was an interesting lesson also to learn in China. And um, so, but I also think that's an important question. Well, the other thing is to take those apparent universals and acknowledge mm, that they exactly. are themselves embedded and come from specific practice. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. This can lead to people saying things like human rights discourse is absurd. Mm -hmm. But it can also lead to people saying, actually, it's not absurd, it's just that. It needs cultivating, yes. development and critique, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we need to understand what happens when we speak universally. Right. But first of you have to become aware that you are speaking universally, and it's very surprising that it's such a, for me, it's such a banal notion to really understand, you know, what, that this is actually situated, and that's why I'm also so interested in the so-called local, what's the mm -hmm. local. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and how people come, well-meaning, transnational NGOs, mm -hmm. and especially politicians who think, okay, this is the solution for this context. But um, of course, that it, it's not. And there is research, um, and, uh, but also practitioners. I mean, there's a Center for Local Strategies Research at the University of Washington. And, and scholars there, actually, they are interested in what are these local strategies that are important to people? What are local decision-making strategies? Um, and um, 
United Nations has become more interested in this question, and and so I think um, it's it's gaining ground. Um, but again, I'm surprised at how um, you know notions like race, for instance, are imposed in different areas in the world. And um, to to also students always ask you know ask my I ask my students so what what does it mean to you? Is that a concept that you just take from your fabulous book here or you know? fabulous article and um, and uh, what do you think how does it work in the context that you are familiar with what race do they call themselves and what race do they call you, do you know? well I don't think people would necessarily um, well in Hong Kong um, you know you would be called like a Guaylo or Guaypa that's like the the you know the kind of now it used to be more a serious term it's more like a fun term now for white people mm. And um, guaylo is the kind of male term. And um, in uh, in China, I think race, and I'm still trying to still trying to to, to get at that. Um, it has a slightly different meaning. Um, so people would talk more about minsu nationalities um, to talk about the different what we would call in in Western countries. I use the Western term rather mm. deliberatively here as ethnic groups. Mm. They would talk about nationality, and then also. Um, when people talk, especially media talk about race, it's usually race in connection to um, to the United States, racial issues and tensions, but not so much race within its own context. So there must be a difference there, whether it's polit politically dispreferred or historically just has a very, very different development. And I think they are very important questions to ask um, if we, you know, talk about conceptual clarity, but also solidarities that we event eventually might try to build. Um. Well, well, Saskia, thank you very much. I think that of the many wise things you've given us today, perhaps the one that's going to stick with me is when you said something along the lines of listen first, mm -hmm. or maybe you said first listen. Perhaps I was talking when you said it. But, yeah. <laughs> listen first, exactly. Listen that first is a, is a great precept mm -hmm. and the humility and openness that exactly. that yes. bespeaks yes. I think are crucial components of academic labor yes. and all too rarely recognized as such. So thank you very much. I wonder if I could extract a promise from you, provisional of course, yes. that when you bring to a conclusion this project mm -hmm. that you're embarked on, and of course it may be ongoing, that you'll come back into the pod and share with us some of your insights. I will. I will. That'd be great. Thank, Thank you so you much. Thank you, Toby. Thank you very much. <laughs>